Hey, good morning. Okay, I finally found the classroom. <laughs> and well, we are going to continue today with the congenital malformation, the pathophysiology. And remember, many of the things that you see here also reinforce other topics that we've seen before. Okay, and try to always find the rationale, the reason for the symptoms, the signs, the findings. Try to visualize the patients depending on the severity, depending on uh, when the patients are diagnosed in the course of the, of the disease. All diseases have what we call a natural history that I will present in a way that they are totally asymptomatic, normally. Okay, normally the diseases appear at the molecular level, okay, something hidden, and we may find some abnormalities, some markers. And the symptoms may start appearing years after this hidden process appears. And the symptoms may be appear one by one, okay, and never as a list, as we see them in the textbooks. And when you read a chapter of a book, you have symptoms, signs, and maybe we get the idea that we are going to find all that in a patient. Okay, but however, maybe we find a couple of them only, and maybe a third one appears five years after that. Okay. And this is what we have to have clear. Okay, uh, some patients are diagnosed immediately, very very early, because they are having a screening test, they are having annual physicals. Or maybe they are doing, uh, for example, an ultrasound for a reason, and we find something else. Incidentally, the patients are diagnosed many times. But patients may appear in the late stages of the disease with a sudden uh, episode of congestive heart failure, cyanosis, okay, when they are, uh, there is very little that we can do for them. So we were talking about Eisenmenger's syndrome. Okay, so notice uh, that the patients start having some manifestations during childhood. Okay, they have a left to right shunt. Okay, what they have is uh, shortness of breath, infections, tachycardia, diaphoresis. Okay, these uh, may be treated or not. Okay, not everybody has access to healthcare. Not everybody belongs to a family that actually takes care of the health of the kids. Then they get better, and, or seem to be getting better, and then they enter into what we call the Eisenmenger syndrome, okay, a moment when there is a very, very little that we can do. Okay, here you can apply some of the general concepts that you have learned when you study inflammation. What is happening in the pulmonary circulation that led to this uh, problem? Okay, there were many years of the lung building immediately over circulation, this excessive volume of blood. These blood vessels, okay, the muscles of these blood vessels start past uh, many years suffering, okay, trying to control, to reduce the amount of blood, the flow that is circulating through the lungs. 
because that will damage the endothelial cells, that will damage the muscle cells, muscles will hypertrophy. Okay, at some point we're going to have hyperplasia of these muscles. There are many inflammatory mediators resulting from the damage to the endothelium. Okay, inflammation will attract some inflammatory cells and chronic inflammation, remember, activates fibroblasts. Fibroblasts are depositing some collagen. So we have a fibrosis of the uh, pulmonary blood vessels. And then we have blood vessels that, at the beginning, they were trying to be constricted all the time to regulate the blood flow through the lungs. But now we have the other layer of Fibrosis, the fibrous tissue. Okay, so they develop a permanent pulmonary hypertension. Okay, and that process, okay, when we have this fibrosis, when we have this permanent uh, increased blood pressure, increased pressure in the pulmonary circulation, is what we call remodeling. Remodeling may appear in any tissue as a result of chronic damage. May appear in the heart and produce arrhythmias, produce a restrictive cardiomyopathy. The heart now doesn't open up during diastole enough, and if the explanation of what happens at the end of this uh, progression of some congenital malformations, okay, the basis of Eisenmenger's syndrome, and remember there is nothing we can do at that point. Okay, if we try to close the ventricular septal defect, the blood will have nowhere to go, because the only pathway now is the pulmonary circulation, and that's blood almost completely blocked. So there is another condition in which we are going to see something that will help us understand the physiology and pathophysiology of the circulatory system, okay, more importantly, within the heart. And that is PDA, patent ductus arteriosus. And this is one of the reasons why I told you try to go back to review the vital circulation. Okay, the ductus arteriosus is a normal fetal structure okay, that allows the, the blood that is coming from the body of the fetus, when it enters the right side of the heart, okay, go into the left circulation, okay, enter into the aorta, because the blood has to bypass the lungs. There is no reason to send blood to the lungs in the, in the fetus. Okay, so patent ductus arteriosus is simply the persistence of the ductus arteriosus okay, that normally connects the main pulmonary artery to the aorta. It should close within around 72 hours. Okay, when we are born, we start breathing, we have an increase in the partial pressure of oxygen. Now the lungs open, we have changes in the pressures in the pulmonary circulation and in the systemic circulation and also in the cavities of the heart. So this should close around 72 hours. Now, what maintains the duct patent? Normally low oxygen conditions, okay, and also the placental prostaglandin. After all of these placental prostaglandins are cleared from the circulation, the liver metabolizes them, okay, and this together with the increased oxygen, the ductus should close. Now, this is a very important piece of information, okay, because sometimes you want to keep the ductus open. Okay, and if you want to keep the ductus open, then you have to use prostaglandins. 
okay, in order to maintain it open. We are going to see examples of when do we want to see uh, that ductus open after birth. Well, the manifestations are going to be just analyze this structure here, okay, because of the shunting of blood from the aorta to the main pulmonary artery. Remember, the blood goes through the pathway of least resistance. Normally, the left ventricle develops a very high pressure compared to the left, to the right. Okay, so analyze the blood moving through the aorta and the blood moving through the pulmonary artery. The aortic blood has a lot of more pressure, comes from the left ventricle than the pulmonary artery. So the blood is going to enter in this direction. Notice how this area of the pulmonary artery is, uh, is in red here, okay, meaning that the oxygenated blood is the one that is coming down here and mixing with the deoxygenated blood that is coming from the right ventricle. We have the mixture here and notice how we have blood going to the lungs okay, that has a higher a pressure of oxygen compared to the one that normally should go. So that means that there is an overcirculation affecting the lungs. Okay, exactly as we saw in the ventricular septal defect in the large ones. Lots of blood moving through the pulmonary circulation. And now we have little blood available for the rest of the body. The blood that should normally go down through the descending and abdominal aorta now is reduced by a certain percentage. So the size of the ductus arteriosus is what determines how the flow is distributed. Okay, small dots are going to create less problems, large dots are going to create a greater problem because of this wrong distribution of the blood flow. For example, when you have a large patent ductus arteriosus, we are going to have a left ventricle and diastolic volume. Okay, the preload to the left ventricle it should increase okay, to have a normal a stroke volume that guarantees the cardiac output. This is a we are having a large PDA, okay, we are not going to have enough blood okay, going to the aorta to produce a normal cardiac output. Let's go back here. Now, what happens with this blood? Okay, the blood, after it enters the pulmonary circulation, creates an overload of blood, and of course, this blood is going to enter okay, in the left ventricle. Okay, and it's going to be pumped to the circulation. Now, the aortic blood okay, now goes into the pulmonary circuit. Okay, there is an increase in the preload, the left atrium pressure increases inhibiting the venous return from the heart leading to pulmonary congestion people are going to have shortness of breath okay, and the pulmonary over circulation during systole and diastole 
is going to occur in these in these patients. Now, people with patent ductus arteriosus normally have a very characteristic murmur. They notice that this is uh, occurring uh, during systole and diastole, okay, so the abnormal flow will occur throughout the entire cardiac cycle. Okay, that, that's why they have this continuous murmur that is described as a machinery murmur. And this will uh, produce impairment of the coronary uh, blood flow and also the sclenic perfusion, meaning the uh, arteries in the lower part of the body, mesenteric arteries, for example, are going to suffer okay, from low circulation. Okay, the over-circulation in the pulmonary part will produce edema, may produce hemorrhage and respiratory distress syndrome. And we have a phenomenon that is known as systemic steel. Okay, that is the name that we give to the decreasing systemic perfusion. Now the blood is going to the lungs. Okay, that together with this lack of circulation in the splanglic part, mesenteric, may uh, lead to something that is very frequent okay, in newborns with PDA that is necrotizing enterocolitis. It is a necrosis of the small intestine and large intestine. And also may have intraventricular hemorrhages, referring to the ventricles in the brain. Okay, there is a great, greater incidence of these uh, conditions in newborns with PDA. And here we also may have what is called Eisenmenger syndrome. Okay, this is another example of a condition in which Eisenmenger may uh, present the large ones, not in the small PDAs, notice that the small PDAs will have no symptoms. The only thing that may happen is endarteritis, so inflammation of the endothelium. Or they may have exertional angina. Remember, there is a compromise of the pulmonary circulation, of the coronary circulation, something that is known as the coronary steel. Okay, we have uh, two phenomena. Here, the systemic circulation steel because of the lack of circulation in the mesenterics, and also the coronary steel phenomenon. Okay, the ductus will compete for the diastolic blood flow. Okay, the ductus has a lot less resistance to the blood circulation than the coronary arteries that are have a smaller diameter. So during diastole, when the blood comes back okay, uh, through the aorta, normally the blood enters the coronary, but if you have a duct, you have an opening with less resistance, the blood is going to go through that pathway. So the coronaries are not going to get enough blood. Now, Take a look at this diagram here, okay, that tries to represent what happens in this patient. There we have the communication okay, between the pulmonary and the aorta, that is the ductus arteriosus. Okay, notice how the blood that is going out through the aorta, I represented here 99% oxygen saturation. Okay, at this level, mixes with the blood from the pulmonary artery. Okay, so we are going to have deoxygenated blood in the lower part of the body. Okay, I put there 80, but to represent the difference. And they are going to have a characteristic clinical finding. 
that is not likely to appear in too many other conditions, that is clubbing of the feet. Okay, clubbing, the pathophysiology of clubbing is very difficult to, to understand, okay, but we associate clubbing with hypoxemia, for example, COPD or some other chronic lung diseases. Okay, when we have hypoxemia as a result of chronic bronchitis or emphysema, we are likely to develop clubbing, most likely in the hands, or in the hands and the feet, it's more frequent in the hands. Now notice that here the difference in oxygen saturation between the upper part of the body and the lower part of the body makes these characteristic findings, feet clubbing. So there is over-circulation in the pulmonary circulation, will lead to an increase in the pulmonary vascular resistance, similar to what happened in ventricular septal defect. And this process may uh, lead to the fibrosis and remodeling of the pulmonary blood vessels, producing a right to left shunt at the level of the PDA. Okay, and this is what we are gonna find as a result of the Eisenmenger syndrome in cases of PDA. Okay, the postdoctal aorta gets mixed blood, so they will have a differential cyanosis. Okay, the upper part of the body is not gonna have cyanosis. The lower part of the body is gonna have cyanosis. Important characteristics to remember about the development of Eisenmenger syndrome in PDA. That is something that we don't see, for example, in ventricular septal defect. In ventricular septal defect, after they develop Eisenmengers, they are gonna have cyanosis everywhere, not only in the lower part of the body. Now, natural history of the disease, how they present through life. Okay, after birth, okay, they present with congestive heart failure symptoms, or is the similarity here to ventricular septal defect? They unusually progress to Eisenmenger if they are not treated, if we don't uh, repair the defect. Okay, they have tachycardia, shortness of breath, diaphoresis, similar to BSD. Okay, the difference is that the murmur, in this case, is going to be a machine-like murmur or continuous murmur. Gypsum murmur is the, the, the classic name that we give to this murmur. When we study these things, remember always that you are not likely to find these boss phrases or boss words. Okay, I'm sure they are having a hard time trying to rewrite all these things. Okay, but it's a murmur that occurs during systole and diastole. And this is heard best in the left intraclavicular area. They are likely to have the bound impulses, very similar to the aortic regurgitation, high diastolic pressure, low systolic pressure. I'll try it the other way around. High systolic, low diastolic. My, my body. And the uh, precordium is going to be hyperdynamic. Okay, there is a, they can be a systolic trio. Okay, and S3 at the apex may be seen. Or as the okay, This is simply representing the problem with the volume overload there. Now, if they have a small PDA, 
probably asymptomatic during childhood, but they may develop symptoms during adulthood. What are the symptoms that they may develop in the adulthood? Systemic hypertension. Okay, there is an increased systemic vascular resistance. Okay, that now we have vasoconstriction as this develops, okay, increasing the shunting. Okay, as we have an increased vascular resistance, the blood has more difficulty to go through the aorta, so it's more likely to enter through the patient, the ductus arteriosus. Okay, the combination of these increased systemic resistance and a decreased compliance of the ventricle. The ventricle has been dilating okay, during many years to accommodate all that excess blood. Okay, it's gonna lead to an increase in the left ventricular filling pressure, so the pressure at the end of the diastole that will favor the pulmonary venous congestion. Okay, this dilation of the cavities of the heart okay, will lead to dilatation of the left atrium favoring atrial fibrillation or any other type of atrial arrhythmia. So basically what happens, more, uh, during adulthood, development of systemic hypertension, okay, venous congestion and pulmonary edema syndrome, symptoms of congestive heart failure and atrial. Okay, people who were totally asymptomatic during childhood. And the next uh, condition is tetralogy of color. Another tip. Remember the teeth are the ones that present with cyanosis early in life. And this is a very interesting congenital malformation. Tetralogy means four. It's composed of four different uh, malformations or there are four different findings associated with it. One is a ventricular septal defect. The other is the overriding aorta. The, the aorta is overriding the ventricular septal defect. And then we have an obstruction to the outlet of the right ventricle. That ventricular outflow obstruction. And a secondary concentric right ventricular hypertrophy. Okay, let's take a look at this diagram. The manifestations and the severity of this condition will depend on this here. Okay, the degree of obstruction, the one that is here with the number two, the degree of obstruction okay, to the pulmonary outflow. Okay, what happens here? Fine, we have a narrow, very, very narrow outlet here. The right ventricle has to force the blood through this orifice, but there is a great resistance here, okay, but the blood has another pathway, that is the ventricular septal defect, with the number one here, and the aorta. Okay, notice how here you have a BSD, notice the huge aorta that is on top of the ventricular septal defect, so the aorta, instead of being to one side, on top of the left ventricle is in between the two ventricles. Okay, receiving blood from the two ventricles at the same time. Okay, that's the meaning of overriding. Okay, so the blood 
tries to go through here, but it can't. It goes to, uh, through the septal defect, mixes with the blood from the left ventricle. And we are going to have mixed blood going through the aorta to the rest of the body. Okay? And of course, the, left, the right ventricle has to deal with the resistance here in the pulmonary uh, trunk, but also has to deal with the resistance that is created by the action of the left ventricle. So it has a hard time trying to pump the blood. Compare a normal, uh, normally the, the right ventricular walls are very thin compared to the, to the left. Okay, typically the left ventricle is the one that has the thickest wall, while this right ventricle has a very thin wall. Look at this here. Okay. We have a very strong, very thick hypertrophy right ventricular wall compared with the left. Okay, that's what explains the four findings associated with the tetralogy of body. So the pathophysiology is simply based on that, on those anatomical findings. Okay, there is a misalignment okay, in, the, in the ventricular septum. The septum protrudes into the pulmonary artery outflow tract towards the other side, making the aorta to be overriding the defect. Okay, and that blocks the circulation through the pulmonary circuit. Okay, these patients present with hypoplasia, okay, poor development of the pulmonary valve, and also the pulmonary branches. The artery and the branches. If the pulmonary valve is narrow, there is not going to be too much blood circulating through there. So everything that is after that is going to be small. Okay, there is going to be poor development of all these structures of the pulmonary circulation. Now, typically in these patients, there is a large ventricular septal defect. So these people are going to have equal systolic pressures in the right and left ventricle. The, the two ventricles are working as one, as if it was a single ventricle. The same pressures in the two sides of the circulation. Oh, well, the part of physiology will depend on what is the degree of obstruction. That's the most important aspect of the part of physiology. Okay, if there is not too much obstruction, the manifestations are going to be milder. If the obstruction is really important, there are going to be very, very severe manifestations. Notice that there are differences, important differences. When there is a mild obstruction, normally there is going to be a left to right shunt through the ventricular septal defect. You have a left to right, patients are not likely to present with cyanosis at this early in life. They may develop cyanosis later in the same way that we have a the development of Eisenmenger syndrome in BSD. But if there is a severe obstruction, okay, the blood can go through the pulmonary artery. It will go necessarily to the left side of the circulation. So severe obstruction will have a right to left shunt, producing low systemic artery saturation, cyanosis manifestation that will be unresponsive to supplemental oxygen. So it's like they were born with the Eisenmenger syndrome. Okay. No response to supplemental oxygen. Of course, this has to fail. It's not Eisenmenger because in Eisenmenger, by definition, repairing 
that effect works. In this case, there is a possibility of repair because there is no fibrosis in the lungs. Okay, the problem with the Eisenmengers is that it results from the fibrosis and remodeling of the pulmonary circulation. So this diagram represents uh, this that we were talking before about what is the equal pressure in the right and left ventricles. Okay, it's also representing the obstruction here to the pulmonary artery circulation. Very narrow body. There is a reduction in the pulmonary blood flow that makes the right ventricle to hypertrophy compared to the left. Okay, and we have the mixture of blood through the ventricular septal defect. What is that the aortic artery, the aorta saturation here okay, is 70%, very low oxygen saturation, explaining the cyanide. Now, this presents early, okay, around two to six months of age, maybe the cyanosis or not, depending on this obstruction in the pulmonary artery. We should suspect tetralogyophalo in patients that have tachypnea, feeding difficulties, diaphoresis, subcostal recession, okay, that means upper part of the abdomen under the ribs, okay, recession, difficulties breathing, the use of accessory muscles, etc., and a severe growth impairment. Now, there is a classic finding uh, or clinical feature okay, in people with tetralogyophalo that is called the dead spell or hypercyanotic spells that typically are triggered by crying, fever, or any physical exertion. So they may not have cyanosis or when they cry, when they are fed, when they have any physical exertion or fever, they may present cyanosis at that point. And these hypercyanotic spells are defined as the acute onset of restlessness. They cause uh, by increased cyanosis, dyspnea, okay, and they have syncope that will often result with the mid chest position, oxygen, and morphine. And the classic uh, findings in these test spells or hypercyanotic spells. The physical exam, they may have a systolic thrill in the left external border. The systolic ejection murmur described as loud and harsh. Okay. And may have or may not have a preceding click. Okay. A single S2. And may have clubbing. This is more likely to be found in older, older children if they are not corrected, in an uncorrected gesture. Then also you have the explanation of these uh, physical exam findings. You don't want to create too much noise here. We're not going to ask you that. We have some practice questions okay, that will serve you to more uh, to have a better understanding okay, of these conditions. 
So for example, here we have the description of a test bat. Okay. Four-year-old male suffers from cyanosis and dyspnea, relieved by squatting. And they ask which of the following abnormalities is most likely present. Okay, the ventricular hypertrophy. Remember in the tetralogy of the right ventricle. That's why it's so important to have clear the definitions of things. Atrial septal defect, normally it's a ventricular septal defect in the tetralogy of Fallot. Ventricular septal defect is the correct view. For activation of the aorta, this is a different formation. Or by cuspid aortic valve. This is a common congenital malformation that may produce sometimes problems, may be sometimes not so This is another question. And in this case, we don't have the answer here. Four-month-old is noted to have a three out of six harsh systolic ejection murmur that is heard at the left upper external border best. In the model reports that the child's lips occasionally turn blue during feeding. Describing a death spot. A cardiologist recommends surgery. Later, the physician remarks that the infant's congenital anomaly was related to a failure of neural crest cells migration. Prior to surgery, which of the following was a likely finding? Let me give you several things there. Okay, we had this just some minutes ago. Remember that the most important of the malformation in TOR is the pulmonic stenosis. I will give you this, we'll share this PowerPoint later. You can have the answer here. Of course, you don't have to remember the embryology, nothing like that. I'm going to give you even this EKG from DOR. Is that they have findings of right atrial enlargement. And to understand the hypercyanotic spells. And besides remembering the triggers, like fever, exercise, feeding, anything that decreases the oxygen saturation. Defecation, crying, feeding, or anything that suddenly decreases the systemic vascular resistance, for example, playing, kicking legs, and awakening or by simply sudden onset of tachycardia or hypovolemia, hydration, ketamine, vomiting, or diarrhea, for example. Okay, these different things will make, uh, will produce an increase in the right to left shunt. So now we have shunting, okay, and fall in the arterial saturation compared to the situation before it. 
okay, there are uh, there is an increase in the right ventricular outflow, tract obstruction, an increase in pulmonary vascular resistance, or a decrease in systemic vascular resistance. So to understand this, we have here represented any situation that decreases the oxygen saturation. Okay, that will produce a response of the body, for example, will increase the adrenergic tone, sympathetic stimulation, circulating catecholamines, there will be an increase in the contractility, that will increase the obstruction, and will increase even more the oxygen saturation. Okay, this decreased oxygen saturation, at the same time, is stimulating respiratory centers, producing the hyperpnea that is associated with Dead so cyanosis, hypermia. Okay, we have some interesting findings. The value of color. I put here on the right side a normal chest X-ray, so you can identify the normal structure. Okay, very important. Make sure that we know what we are looking at. And this is something different, what that could be. And this is how classically the tetralogy of Palo looks like. A good shaped heart. It's an enlargement of the right ventricle. The apex is lifted up. Now the right ventricle is occupying all this space here. Okay, there is a concavity in the region of the pulmonary artery. Notice the pulmonary trunk is like convex here. So now we have a cone cavity. And the lung fields are polygenic, little blood flow. You almost don't see anything. It looks almost like emphysema. And in this case, it's not because of destruction of the tissue. It's because of very little blood there. And these are the, the area of the pulmonary island where you have the great the uh, blood vessels and the bronchi, etc. They are hypoplastic. You almost see nothing okay, in the island region of the lungs. Okay. One important thing is the boot shape part, elevation of the apex of the lungs. But then we have another condition that tends to appear very frequently on exams. And that is coarctation of the aorta. Coarctation or narrowing. The narrowing may appear at different places. A typically, coarctation of the aorta causes hypertension in the upper extremities relative to the lower extremities, so there is different blood pressure. And there are two types, postdoctal or preductal. Is that the postdoctal tend to appear tends to appear more in adults? That is distal to the ductus arteriosus, and the preductal is that the one that occurs proximal to the ductus arteriosus. Right. Put this here so you have an idea again where the ductus arteriosus so can occur here before or after, depending on. And the risk factors for this are Turner syndrome, the okay, Williams syndrome, 
normal development of the aura, the pathophysiology, the actual pathology there, the actual thing that happens is not very clear. But there are some theories. Okay, the most accepted is that due to abnormal developmental processes that they don't clarify. There is an inward pulling of the Arctic wall that develops into a narrowing. And the blood that is going through the Arctic arc that wants to go to the rest of the body has to find other pathways. Okay, all that blood can go to the head and the arms. It has to go to the lower part of the body, but maybe find another way. So they develop collateral circulation, and that collateral circulation is using the intercostal arteries. Now, these intercostal arteries have to do the job of the abdominal aorta, so they will enlarge. And the enlargement and the high circulation, high flow, high pressure in these intercostal arteries will produce problems in the ribs, okay? They will erode the ribs. Normally, the 
artery pain nerves. They are located in the lower border of the ribs. Okay. I'm not gonna, I don't want to repeat anything more about the muscles. I know it's uncomfortable. I'm the one who is talking and I'm the one who's having to think about pathophysiology with hypercapnia. Okay? And that's not easy. Please. Everybody's tired of COVID, everybody's tired of and we don't want to get more problems than the ones we have. Okay, so these are the different things that we may find in the patients. Okay, when you do a chest X-ray, you may find that the lower edge of the ridge is weird, there is erosion, very thin, it's irregular. Okay, but anyway, they are going to have a reduced aortic uh, blood flow to the lower part of the body. That's why they have this low blood pressure in the lower extremities. And as in any other condition, the degree of the narrowing is going to determine okay, the severity. Okay, we have to suspect, because as I told you, we very rarely measure the blood pressure in the legs. Very rarely. Unless we are told to do something. But if you have a kid with hypertension, why is that? Why I have a four-year-old, five-year-old, without any problem, at least that we know, that has hypertension? And there is, maybe they have family history of hypertension, but the grandparents, when they were after the age of 50, okay? So in that case, we have to look for it's elevated in the arms and it's hypertension, systemic hypertension, it should be also elevated in the legs. Shouldn't be normal. Okay. So we suspect this in any kid with a hypertension. Okay, that is difficult to treat. Or has left ventricular hypertrophy or EKG findings or rib notching on the chest X-ray. Maybe they go to the hospital because they have any upper respiratory tract infection, they do a chest X-ray, oh my goodness, what is this? This left ventricular hypertrophy, this rib induction, those are things that may uh, lead to the diagnosis. Okay, typically they have headaches, shortness of breath, tolerance to exercise, poor feeding, fatigue. And depending on the severity, for example, mild and moderate cases are clinically silent for many years. But if they are not diagnosed, they are going to have really bad uh, long-standing effects because of the hypertension. Okay, that may even uh, be, be affecting the person after there is a repair of the segment. Now, the severe narrowing will present with symptoms very early. Low cardiac output, shock, okay, that will present once the ductus arteriosus closes. Remember, the ductus arteriosus closes within 72 hours. Okay, during the first, second day of life, 
the blood that normally goes through the aorta and can move through the coarctation is going to enter through the ductus arteriosus into the pulmonary circulation. So there is a pathway for the blood to circulate. But once the ductus arteriosus closes naturally, the blood doesn't have any, any, anywhere to go. It's a narrowing and may go. And remember that still we don't have the collateral circulation developed. So all that blood is going to go through the subclavian, to the carotids, and that will create a very important problem. And the lower part of the body is not going to receive any blood. Because it's narrow, very narrow, and there are no collaterals yet that will develop over time. So this is the example where we want to maintain the ductus arteriosus open. Okay? This is the case that requires prostaglandins infusion to maintain the PDA. And of course, after they are stabilized, surgery to open that stent or do any kind of repair. That's why I told you that piece of information about the prostaglandins is very important. And if you give prostaglandins, don't give anything that inhibits the prostaglandins. Okay? You understand how to study pharmacology? Predict. Okay? When you're reading something, don't simply get the idea. Okay? How can this idea be used? Why? This is here. Why they want me to know this? Because maybe I'm going to be using this in the future. They try to create problems. Oh, we give prostaglandins, so I shouldn't give. So I give it to you. That's it. Now, on the physical exam, you have some specific findings. Systolic murmur, harsh, left sternal border. May also have a systolic murmur in the left and right side of the chest. Thrills from the collateral circulation over time. What is the most uh, important thing? Okay, femoral pulses weaker than the brachial, bounding pulses in the upper extremities and carotids, and delay in the femoral pulse compared to the radial pulse. That is easy to understand. Okay, you have a lot of blood in the upper part of the body, huge pulse pressure, and in the lower part of the body, very thin pulse. It's like having aortic regurgitation in the upper part of the body and aortic stenosis in the lower part of the body. You can associate the findings. They have the differential cyanosis. It's going to affect only the lower part of the body. Where else we see a differential cyanosis? Isomenger associated with? Remember, Eisenmengers may happen in BSD and PDA. In BSD, there is total cyanosis. Okay? In BSD, there is universal cyanosis. In PDA, if they develop Eisenmengers, they will have the differential cyanosis. And this is another example of how do you do hospice? If you have a case, with differential cyanosis, there are very few examples of things that make sense for the differential diagnosis. Okay, one of them is coarctation of the aorta, and the other is asymmetric in PDA. Is there anything else that fits this differential diagnosis? 
someone put the hand inside the chest and squeeze the air. That's the, the, the only other thing that I can imagine. Or maybe, I don't know, the sudden thrombosis of the iliac arteries, sudden thrombosis of the abdominal aorta. It's a different kind of thing. But it's not very frequent. Yeah, could be, uh, for example, uh, dissecting out the cannabis. Okay. Blocks the circulation to the lower part of the body. We will produce a difference of cyanosis. However, if we are talking about a six year old kid, we don't mention dissecting out the cannabis. Or you can, for example, if you are in an hospital, well, I would think of this, but this is a kid. I'm sorry. That makes sense. So, hypertension in the upper part of the body. Normal pressure or low pressure compared to the upper extremities. Underdeveloped legs compared to the arms. And you have the rib notching. See, irregular and more transparent lower part of the ribs compared to the upper part. This is a coarctation after stent. And we have a question here. Very nice, no? Having the question after we learn this. Let's see a couple of questions here and then of the break. Five-year-old girl present with muscle cramping. I'm giving you these questions because I need you to see the chief complaint. Okay? Chief complaint. You see, muscle cramping, you immediately think osteomuscular. Okay? Or electrolyte imbalance. In the lower extremities, after walking, extended distances. Mm, that looks like peripheral arteries. Claudication. Okay? The younger is in the 10th percentile for height, past medical history. The only thing is a cystic hygroma detected shortly after that. And which of the following findings do you know what is a cystic hygroma? You can Google it so you know that there is a syndrome that is associated with that. What is the syndrome that is characterized by cystic hygroma? Which of the following findings is most likely in this patient? Decreased blood pressure in the upper and lower extremities, bar bodies in the vocal smear, endocardial cushion defects, inferior erosion of the ribs, apparent hypertrophy of the calves. Well, we already studied this and we know that it's related to this. So that is inferior erosion. And this is Turner syndrome. Okay, this is the cystic hygroma is something that appears in patients with Turner syndrome, notice how they don't tell you the patient has Turner syndrome. I want you to focus on these things. And that's why it's important to have clear that when they say cystic hygroma, that is Turner syndrome. Because everybody, oh, Turner syndrome, partition of the aorta. <laughs> they don't give you the syndrome. And the same will happen with Down syndrome, the same will happen with many things.
I noticed the other ones. Look at them later. Let's have a break. Let's have the break on till 11 1120. uploading immediately after we finish here. And the more questions you study, the better it's going to be for you. But please use these questions properly. Uh, don't try to simply, oh, let me look at the answer and remember this fact. And to break down the question. And a great exercise, as I have told you many times, try to change uh, the vignette or the question, the leading question. So the correct option instead of B is B or C or A. Okay, if they are asking for, uh, I know, may maybe you have their, uh, this patient has this and that, and the correct option is B, change maybe the age or maybe the disease changes from acute to chronic. Or instead of asking for diagnosis, ask for complications, for treatment, for something different. Okay, and that way you are helping yourselves to actually uh, strengthen okay, those connections in the brain. Here we have a 28-year-old okay, in an urgent care with weakness, confusion. Okay, and says that the heart rate is racing is racing and flopping. No past medical history and no previous episodes of anxiety or heart issues. Smokes. Social drinker. It's a 28-year-old. Okay, and denies the use of any illicit drugs. She has no drug allergies. She doesn't take any medications. And there you have an EKG. Now, the question says, the patient ventricular contraction rate is determined by which of the following? Okay. First of all, you need to do a, an interpretation of the EKG. I don't think that is hard to do. There is irregularity, and the irregularities are not regular. So having in mind that, condition? What is the correct answer there? What determines the ventricular contraction rate? I think we talked about this yesterday. No? Answering to a question from one student. And this is maybe the atria are beating at 30, uh, 300 have a rate of 300 per minute, but you don't see that rate in the pancreas. Mm. <coughs> the refractory period of the AV node, remember that this is the delay in the conduction. Okay, only those impulses from the atria that are capable of passing through the AV node, that is very slow, okay, will be successful in creating a ventricular contraction. 
because it is dependent on the bundle of keys or purkinji fibers contraction speed, we would have a particular rate of 300, okay, that would equal the, the eight cut rate. you will have some more explanations here. Now, what about this? What is that? Is that GP? And the guys there in the ER following complaints on the screen. Is that GP? You sure? I don't know. You are the ones who are studying EKG. I'm not. 56-year-old male brought to the ER following complaints of severe chest pain. Pain came while he was shoveling snow, crushing 8 out of 10, radiating to the jaw. Never happened before. Diaphoresis, headache, palpitations, denied fever, weight changes, upper respiratory symptoms, abdominal pain. Um, where was History, uh, hypertension, lysinopril. Drink six, seven beers per day, four, five days a week. The physical exam only diaphoresis. An EKG is obtained and the results are shown. What is the most likely condition leading to these patient EKG results? Be careful with this type of question. What is the shape of those? Those waves there? You see a pattern, like going up and down. Be careful with this type of questions. Okay, in this case, the, the, the answer is easy. It may not be easy. What do you think is the, the answer? It's alcohol, cocaine, drug, adverse effects, hyperkalemia, mind. But the guy looks like he's having an MI, but what? I'm telling you, be careful because what they describe in the vignette might not be the most common cause of that. Maybe the guy has an MI and he's having this manifestation on the EKG, but maybe the most common cause of that specific EKG finding is not the MI, maybe it's something else. Be very careful, careful when you answer this type of question. This is. MI, in this case, is uh, you can even, okay, the guy has an MI, so probably is the, is the correct answer. Okay, but when you read this explanation, ah, you were right. When you read this explanation, please make sure that you understand why the other options are not. Okay? Okay, remember that. Uh, that's the way, if you use questions to study, that's the most appropriate way. For example, alcohol. Cocaine. I would, if I were you, okay, I would try to 
take these answers here, the explanation of the incorrect answers, and try to write a little bit about EKG findings in those conditions. For example, alcohol typically produces a ventricular dilation. Then how would you find an EKG in a dilated heart, dilated cardiomyopathy? Okay, what happens if people take cocaine? Cocaine is a, is a cause of ventricular fibrillation. Of course, this patient will put it out because it doesn't say anything. And for example, hyperkalemia tries to do the same. How it appears, the EKG in hyperkalemia. And when you study hyperkalemia and EKG, please make sure you understand the difference between mild, moderate, and severe hyperkalemia. It's totally different. Okay, we have in our mind 50 ways hyperkalemia. But depending on the level of potassium, okay, the findings are gonna vary. Now, here we have a 63-year-old male admitted to the intensive care unit for hemodynamic instability. Several days prior, he was swimming the Gulf, Co uh, Gulf Coast. He stepped on a sharp road and cut his right foot. That's, that's a complicated thing. You have to know what's there, what happens after that. Now, the patient presented to the ER after noticing a painful redness spreading along the skin up from his right foot and was subsequently admitted for treatment with antibiotics. Right now, the temperature is 101.8. The pressure is very low. Mean arterial pressure of 59. Pulse 104. Respirations 14. Telemetry shows sinus tachycardia. Blood cultures are pending, but gram stain demonstrated gram-negative bacilli. Okay. What describes the form of shock and the skin exam? Shock, infection, what is the type of shock? Yeah. What is the type of shock of what that we see in people with infections? Is there a septic shock? I agree, yeah, septic shock, but according to what you have there, the classification of septic shock is one of the distributive shocks. Have a generalized vasodilation, in this case as a result of toxins or cytokines. Other types are anaphylactic, neurogenic shock. Okay, notice that they include there the neurogenic shock. Is a type of distributive, okay? But normally, the, the neurogenic doesn't have a warm skin. Okay, so the correct answer here is distributive. Pay attention very well to this question for cardiology. Okay. And you have a lot of great information. And if you want to create an exam using just this information, you can create an entire exam. Okay, just varying, uh, combining the cardiogenic with the cold skin, warm skin, and, and these things. Now, I'm going to give you some examples of questions here. Notice that you can use the information in shock to create 
What's the very first question of this example? Which of the following is the most likely, the most likely result from a severe sepsis? You have the same options that we saw before. Which of the following will most likely result after a massive release of cytokines in a patient with an infectious disease? Which of the following best explains the pathophysiology of this condition? When you have the vignette that you saw before, and we alter the leading question and the options. So there is a loss of peripheral vascular tone and compensatory increase in cardiac output. That's the starting point of the distributive shock. In one case, uh, because of toxins or cytokines. In another case, because of lack of sympathetic stimulation, the neurogenic, or vasodilation because of massive release of uh, anaphylotoxins, histamine, etc. Then you have other types of shock. Loss of blood, that is the hypovolemic. Loss of peripheral vascular tone due to unopposed cholinergic activity. That would be neurogenic. Loss of cardiac output and compensatory increase in peripheral vascular tone, that is the cardiogenic. Loss of peripheral vascular tone in response to homeostatic temperature control. Is that something that makes sense in the case of shock? And more, which of the following conditions will most likely present with warm skin? More exactly, the septic. Of the options there, the only one that presents or makes sense with warm skin is the distributive. Which of the following has a similar pathophysiologic mechanism? Mind that you have the, the, the vignette. If you want to complicate the question a bit more, which of these has a similar pathophysiologic mechanism? In both, there is a peripheral vasodilation as the triggering event for the shock. This is so you understand how, you, based on a single concept, you can work around that concept and create infinite possibilities. Now, real question here, we have a 68-year-old female, okay, she's in the emergency department, was brought there by an ambulance, okay, and was found by her daughter, she lives alone, unclear when she began to develop symptoms, medical history, Arrhythmias, diabetes, pericarditis, stroke, two years ago. Temperature 98, blood pressure, very low, pulse very high, respiration is okay. Skin is cold and clammy. Special tests, even special tests were obtained. They would reveal dramatically decreased pulmonary capillary expression, increased systemic vascular resistance, and mildly this cardiac output. Okay, notice now that the question says, which of the following treatments would most directly target the cause of the patient's low blood pressure? That's a question that gives so many uh, weird rounds to ask you something. How would you treat the low blood pressure in this patient with what type of shock? If there is a decrease pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, what is that? 
You know what is the capillary, the pulmonary capillary width pressure? Okay, when you introduce a catheter, you introduce a catheter to a vein, you take it uh, to the right atrium, right ventricle, and then you move through the pulmonary artery. Okay, you can measure the pulmonary artery pressure. And then you can do something very quickly, inflate a balloon, blocking the pulmonary artery circulation. So no more, more blood enters through one of the lungs. So you're measuring the, 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 the blood pressure on the other side. There is the blood that is there in the capillaries of the lungs that represents the pressure of the left atrium indirectly. So measuring the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure tells you how is the left atrium. If it's elevated, you have a huge pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, you mean you imagine that the left ventricle is not pumping blood. So there is a systolic failure. And there is a volume that is trying to move through the left heart as it can. So that is a sign of congestive heart failure. But if the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure is very low, that means there is not, the, the, the left atrium is not receiving blood. There's a very little amount of fluid there. So that would be a, an example of hypovolemia. So how would you treat the blood pressure, the very low blood pressure in this patient. Now we have no idea why it is like that. What is the problem? Is the problem that the heart is not contracting or that the blood has the heart has nothing to pump? The heart has nothing to pump. If it pumps harder, still has nothing to pump. Okay, so I agree with Okay. The pulmonary capillary which pressure is telling you about the volume status of the patient. Volume overload, diuretics. Hypovolemia, fluids. If the problem is contractility, high narcotics. Okay? an example of hypovolemic shock, okay, that has to be treated with fluid resuscitation. That is the incorrect answers, antibiotic for septic shock, ID inotropes for cardiogenic shock, obstruction for obstructive or relieving obstruction for obstructive shock, for example, a cardiac tamponade or a tension pneumothorax or a massive pulmonary embolism would produce obstructive shock. Vasopressor for distributive shock. Okay, sometimes you need to use more than one. And we have variations here of the same question. So you understand the structure of the multiple choice question. Which of the following interventions would most likely directly target the cause of low blood pressure in a patient with hypovolemic shock? That is a simple and recall question. Very level. Uh, Recall level, which of the following types of shock most likely manifests with significantly decreased pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, increased systemic vascular resistance, and mildly decreased cardiac output? That is the hypovolemic. Okay, low volume, the heart doesn't have anything to pump, but the systemic 
blood vessels constrict, trying to keep the little volume that's still, still there in the brain, in the heart, in the vital organs. The patient is admitted due to extremely low blood pressure. Initial test reveal the above things that we said before. Which of the following is the most likely etiology of this patient's condition? Hemorrhage. See how is the sentence? Okay, it's asking if you know what produces hypovolemia. Uh, or this finding. It's clinical finding. Now we're going to pharmacology. 68-year-old woman with chest pain. Severe sudden crushing sternal, substernal pain one hour ago. Hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, obesity, prior MI. Coronary artery bypass graft two years ago. Takes aspirin, metoprolol, many things. Sedentary life, retired. Spinal signs are not very bad except the pulse and respirations a bit. Before being able to start the physical exam, the patient loses consciousness. Pulse is palpable but weak. Blood pressure is now very low. Pulse very elevated. In spell called clamming. EKG demonstrates ST elevations, one, all these things. A medication that primarily stimulates which of the following receptors would be most appropriate to improve the hemodynamic status of the patient. So she has a cardiogenic shock. Okay, she was more or less stable and suddenly developed a cardiogenic shock. What medication would you use to improve the hemodynamic status of the patient? Alpha-1 receptor, uh, adrenergic receptors, stimulating them, alpha-2, beta-1, beta-2, T2. What do you want to do? What's the problem here? How do you treat a cardiogenic shock? It's not a problem volume. No, it's not volume, the problem. You don't have to be fluid. Okay, but please gonna go to the long. What is the type of adrenergic receptor that is most predominant in the heart? You want to make the heart beat stronger. Okay. That's the correct. Alpha uh, one receptors are in the blood vessels. Okay, uh, beta one in the heart, beta two in the lungs. What are the two receptors? Dopamine. Please read the rationale, very important, very good information for pharmacology that you may need not now but in the future. Notice that D2 receptors, bromocryptin is, a, is an agonist of the, of the dopamine 2 receptor, used to treat hyperprolactinemia and Parkinson's disease. Stimulate the dopamine receptor. Dopamine. Uh, Normally, it's an inhibitor. It's inhibitor of uh, prolactin secretion. 
Okay, when you give medications like dopamine antagonists, people may develop hyperprolactinemia. So if you stimulate the dopamine receptors, we are going to inhibit the prolactin production. And it's going to be good for, for Parkinson because stimulation of dopamine receptors is going to help people with Parkinson. It's going to inhibit prolactin. Next question, 54-year-old male hospitalized after a left hemicolectomy for colon cancer. After surgery, was operative day one, hemoglobin has dropped from 7.1 to 5.3. Patient doesn't report feeling any differently. Temperature, 104, 100.4. Blood pressure, 102 over 80. This historic pressure is not good. What is the differential? or the, the, the pulse pressure is just 22. 22. Pulse is 95, respiration 14. The patient's urine output has been one centimeter, cubic centimeter for the last eight hours prior to the operation. The patient has had a temperature of 98.8. Blood pressure was better. The pulse was 65. What is more concerning, what is the most concerning thing about the severity of this hypovolemia? They are giving you that the patient has hypovolemia. But they ask you what is most concerning, what you have to be most, mostly worried about. Decreased pulse pressure, decreased systolic blood pressure, increased heart rate, increased temperature, the urine output. That's a problem. That's you have to know especially in health. Because it's normal that we are not sure if the decreased pulse pressure, that means the difference between the systolic and diastolic, or simply the decreased systolic pressure is what is more most concerning. Okay? That's the difficult one. And is the systolic blood pressure dropping? What is here the explanation, okay? Hemorrhage has many signs and symptoms that depend on the degree of blood loss. First sign that is typically seen is a minimal increase in heart rate. That tells you the natural history of the patient that is bleeding, and we are not aware. Minimal increase in heart rate for the blood loss, less than 15% of the blood volume. Next, they develop tachycardia, tachypnea, decreased pulse pressure, because there is an increase in the diastolic pressure, because the blood vessels are constricting, the diastolic goes up, and that narrows the difference between systolic and diastolic. Now, when they lose a lot of blood, now the systolic pressure starts dropping, and that means we are, we are going to lose, we are losing the patient, because we are, there is no enough cardiac output. So we start seeing the altered mental status, etc. That is an interesting question that tells you the clinical findings or physical exam findings according to the degree of blood loss. Very useful information. And let's finish with this one, 73-year-old, in the ED, unconscious, cold, clammy skin. Blood pressure is 65. Over palpable, that means they are uh, assessing the blood pressure using the pulse. 
If I over huddle, there are no signs of blood loss. Uh, you recognize the patient is in a kid shot. And blood is drawn for investigation as resuscitation is initiated. Which of the following might you expect in your laboratory investigation? Increased pH in arteries, increased bicarbonate, increased serum ketones, decreased hemoglobin, increased heart rate. What is that? What happens when we are in shock? In every type of shock, there is not enough perfusion to the tissues. That means tissues are not receiving oxygen. If they don't get oxygen, they are going to look for alternative, part-time job. And that part-time job produces lots of lactic acid plus little ATP. Not well paid. Okay, so if you have a lot of lactic acid, the hydrogen in the blood increases, hydrogen binds to bicarbonate, so bicarbonate is going to be low, the pH is going to be low as well, this is acidosis, and we are going to find an increased level of blood lactate. Okay, we have no reason to see any kind of ketones if the patient is not a diabetic type 1, or decreased hemoglobin if the patient is not bleeding. And there are no signs of blood loss, as the question stem states. Okay, this is going to be the hand, and we are not going to be needing the Okay, so I already told Professor Rivas I'm going to be removing the tomorrow's cardiology from there. Okay, I'm going to upload right now the PowerPoint so you take a look at the rest of the question. Yeah. Um, we can have it tomorrow or or next week. Uh, what are the two options? Huh? Which is ready, I just have to make it available.